This is Money and Meaning, a podcast featuring stories about unlocking the potential of global markets to drive impact. My name is Lindsay Smalling. This episode is being released on March 24th, 2020, as the entire world is being brought to a standstill by the coronavirus pandemic. I recorded this interview with Jed Emerson in mid-February, and while it feels like everything has changed in the last few weeks, I think this interview is both relevant to the current moment and a nice reflective break from it. Jed Emerson is a pioneer of impact investing and continues to be a thought leader of this growing field. For listeners who may be hearing from Jed for the first time, I hope our conversation provides an introduction to the arc of his thinking over many decades, which in many ways tracks the evolution of this conversation about money and meaning and the emergence of impact investing. For listeners who have been impact practitioners and colleagues of Jed's, I still find unique insight and timely perspective in every conversation. Here we go. I'm so excited to have one of my mentors in the space, first collaborators in this space with us on the podcast today, Jed Emerson, who anyone who's listening to this podcast should know, but if they don't, you're going to get a great preview today. Jed is the originator of the concept of blended value, which laid much of the foundation for what has become impact investing. And Jed's been writing on these topics for over 20 years. I know that I first encountered you as a real person in, I think it was 2011. Um, It was an event in New York City. Brian Walsh from LiquidNet was interviewing you. And the piece I always remember is that you said, um, he, he sort of asked you a general, like, what is impact investing? And you quoted Dan Aykroyd and said, well, it's a dessert topping and a floor wax, <laughs> which is like from some Saturday Night Live skit way before my time. But um, it was just sort of, you know, referencing that there was still so much murk around, like, how do you define this? And what it is to one person isn't what it is to another person. And right. hopefully we've clarified some of that over the last decade. Well, but. <laughs> so, but just to that point, I ha- since you raised that issue, I have to say I was genuinely shocked the other day when I saw a blog post that was titled something like, you know, Introduction to Impact Investing, the New Asset Class. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> we're going backwards. And, and I just was like, oh. And the, the point about the floor wax and the dessert topping is that it can be, you can view it as a lens or you can view it as a sleeve. And, and so, yes, you can have direct impact within a portfolio, but all capital has impact across a portfolio. So to my mind, the important thing has always been, how do you understand and define you know, the, the impact profile of different strategies and instruments and funds and whatnot? Um, but it's all impact across the board. And we need to take, again, that kind of total portfolio mindset to that. So I have to say I was, I was mortified when I saw this piece because I was like, oh, my God, my entire life's work is for not because people are still talking about it as an asset class alone. So anyway, right. it was pretty funny. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think there's still this apparent tension to impact investing where you get those presentations of it. Like, how does one combine money and meaning, you know, but like it's sort of a product of this in historical terms, relatively recent construct where things have become more binary. Like this is how you make money. This is how you give money. And I think 
your thought leadership and sort of the through line of your work that's continued to influence me is this much more holistic view. And I just, from some your earliest presentations of blended value, which is like 2000, so literally 20 years ago, you say, our focus should be upon how to maximize the total value creation potential and performance of organizations, whether these are nonprofits, for-profits, hybrids, and how best to maximize the total performance of capital, whether philanthropic, below market, market rate risk adjusted, and talking about returns that are financial and social and environmental. And I think it's, it's still that. Right. Right. It's still just like, no, it's all one picture. And that's what you're beating a drum on constantly and probably why you feel like you're a little insane. Yes. No, but I think that's, I mean, I have to say that's very well said. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it is the same thing. And again, the thing that I think we forget is that the aberration is not that idea of a holistic understanding of value and life and capital and everything. The aberration is the more recent kind of idea that you can pursue financial return and not think about social and environmental things. And it's really when, as we've seen the rise of, you know, Wall Street financial capitalism that is put through this very uh, American-centric understanding of the purpose of capital as being simply to maximize financial return for shareholders, which really only came up in the late 50s and 60s with uh, Milton Friedman. Um, that's the, the strange, bizarre, you know, creation of an understanding of economy that basically runs against, you know, the original Greek uh, word for economy, which meant household management and providing for the whole, right? Um, and so it's it's really frustrating, quite frankly, to see people struggle so much with this because this this idea of a bifurcated value proposition where you have to choose between doing well or doing good is really a much more recent kind of evolution in thinking that now we've got to kind of overcome and go back uh, in order to go forward. Right. Yeah, it's somehow like in the air people breathe and hard to get them out of it. But I think, you know, if we fast forward to your most recent publication, The Purpose of Capital, it's this enormous bibliography of thinkers well before Milton Friedman who are connecting capital into the human experience, to our place in the arc of history. And I think that's one thing I've always taken from you is that is to just recognize that this is a moment in time and that there's so much great work that's come before, whether that's the last 20 years of writing you've done or the, you know, centuries of work that was done before thinking about money, the purpose of capital, meaning. Well, and also, uh, obviously, I came into an established community of folks who were exploring all of these ideas. Like when when I left, because I was originally in my 20s in street social work and running a program for homeless youth. And when I left that to begin moving into this space, there was already social venture network, investor circle, uh, different what we would now call kind of impact angel networks. Uh, there were people like Woody Tesh, uh, Steve Viederman, you know, just the names just flow in terms of yeah. folks already doing this stuff. And so in some ways, uh, Chairman Mao said, uh, a, a leader is somebody who sees a parade and runs to stand in front of it. And <laughs> I, I think that's all I did. And, you know, obviously at that time was welcomed by all these folks that I've had the pleasure really of, of working with and whose ideas I've, uh, I've tried to help expand and build upon in my own work. So, 
Well, and I love you've referenced um, a parade. I think in our SOCAP 10 year anniversary book, your whole intro was framed on this analogy of a parade and the collaborative nature of, you know, you need all the instruments and you need the flag team and everyone, you know, that right. this, that we don't need to worry so much about is any instrument better than the other or does one matter more? It's that you need all of it. And, yeah. and that's hugely a part of my thinking with the event and everything. Yeah, no, I will say that that's certainly true. And I still do believe that we need to be kind of big tent and, you know, accepting of a lot of different perspectives and understanding that each of us are on different journeys, but we're all fundamentally exploring the same paths. Um, and so all that is true. And that said, one of the the dangers of that is that it doesn't mean that all voices are equal and that, you know, all opinions are the same of, as knowledge, if you will. Um, right. And I think we were in danger as a field because what's happened is that it used to be a very broad kind of community with a lot of different ideas and voices and things. And what has happened in the last five to 10 years is, is you have had more and more of the mainstream financiers and the financial institutions, the investment banking groups coming into the space. You know, they sponsor various events and conferences and things. And, and in some ways, they've they've literally bought the mic, if you will, and are now controlling our narrative. And we're having to respond to them and say, no, 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 it's not. It isn't just, you know, gosh, how do you maximize financial return and still convince yourself you're not killing the planet? Um, we really do need to revisit the fundamentals of financial capitalism and move, move away from an extractive you know, economy and a mindset toward one that is more inclusive, uh, that is more regenerative, that's circular, uh, that these are the, this, we, we have to move in that direction. It's not good enough to say, isn't it fantastic that the large financial institutions are now coming to play so we all can go home and let them kind of like do to impact investing in sustainable finance what they did to traditional economics and you know, value creation as traditionally understood. Um, right. And so I think we're at a point in time where we need to, to really, you know, again, go back to reconnecting with our understanding of what is the fundamental purpose of capital, not simply how do you use capital as one more tool to just make more money. And that's a much deeper uh, set of questions and reflections than I see people really engaging with in the mainstream and so we're, on the one hand, we've got this great opportunity to reconnect with that at a much broader level with all these new actors. And on the other hand, we're a little challenged because you do see a lot of the newer people making pronouncements and talking about what impact is and all that. And you're kind of like, no, that's not really quite it. You're not listening. <laughs> um, and so, and then they, you know, they do things like, you know, we see... Recently, I think Goldman Sachs, it was that said that, you know, they're not going to bring any companies to an IPO that don't have a woman on the board. And on the one hand, you're like, OK, well, great. And but checking that box is not the point. The point is to change the culture of corporations. And and you don't do that by pointing to one person and saying, well, we have our representative. Everything's OK. <laughs> and it doesn't make any sense. I mean, you, you really they should be you know, there should be multiple women on boards as a result of how we're changing our understanding of how corporations should be managed to what end and with what means. And so uh, this is where 
On the one hand, great that we've got this broader conversation and the attention of the mainstream finance folks. But on the other hand, it's a little striking to me how little they understand about what this conversation really is about. Yeah, I will say, I mean, I have seen, though, I totally agree with you. And at the same time, I've watched within SOCAP the way that tokenism or what could be perceived as tokenism, us saying that there needs to be a woman on every panel and that there needs to be racial diversity on every panel. While that absolutely is tokenism and doesn't matter if we don't change the culture, that in itself has changed the culture so much because that we get into these really productive conversations with session leaders who are like, um, I understand the sentiment, but literally there's no women who work in real estate. And I'm like, well, that's just not true. And, <laughs> and, and if it is true, we probably don't want you to present at this conference. Right. So work a little harder. And so, and they always come back with it and it makes the content better. And so just getting those women's voices on boards will be important. And I'm sort of of the Fake it till you make it is better than not even faking it. Sure. No, and I, I don't disagree in any way at all. I also feel like, for me, for example, with The Purpose of Capital and the rollout of that, uh, which is a free book, by the way, so I'm not just pumping my book. <laughs> um, you can get all the, of your stuff is free. That's right, the thing that's so frustrating <laughs> is that you're like, it's all there. It's you all, can just, all read it. <laughs> go read it. But in any event, uh, so you can download the book. But uh, when I started looking at the rollout uh, for the last... 18 months of speaking on these issues and themes, I realized that what I was not going to do was stand up and give keynote talks where I just kind of pontificated for half hour, 45 minutes. And, and part of that is a real uh, deep understanding of this idea that the, the answers that we're all seeking are really not going to come out of my mind or your mind, but rather out of the dynamic of our minds working together and being in dialogue with each other. Um, and, and so there's that commitment, which I would identify as the kind of culture change, if you will, of an understanding of how knowledge and wisdom kind of comes forward. And I also then had to say to people, they would invite me <laughs> to come talk. And I would say like, well, I'm not really giving any talks. So I want to be in conversation with somebody from your community. And it's really interesting because I, the next week I will give the first, I will be in conversation uh, with the first white male in over a year. <laughs> and all of my other conversations have been uh, with women and women of color because it's, it's just such a richer discussion and conversation when you're exploring these ideas around meaning, purpose, value, culture. Um, so I think it's a both end. Maybe it's kind of like on the one hand, you've got to say, I'm not doing this anymore, we're gonna do that. And on the other hand, the reason that that works is because you're embracing a different understanding of kind of relationship and being in purpose. Yeah, and I think, you know, just getting started is, is the first step, sure. so yeah. That's right. Um, okay, so to that note of everything <laughs> you've ever written is out there. And in, I was so excited when you said you do this interview because you know we've known each other and worked together for seven, eight years now. And if I've learned anything, it's that uh, you should reference 
what's out there. And when I went back to reference what's out there, I was like, I don't even know what I can add here. You know, <laughs> like everything you've said, other people have done excellent interviews with you. It's all on blendedvalue.net. So there's like an amazing compilation of your writings, interviews people have done with you. So for anything that we, you know, have already chatted about here or that we dig into in the rest of this interview, I just want to tell all of our listeners that you can go way deeper on all of this on Jed's website and just, you know, a little poking around on the internet. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And it is, it's blendedvalue.org for the website. Oh, uh, .org, sorry. The email is uh, jed at blendedvalue.net. Okay. So, and we'll put all of this in the blog accompanying this podcast as well, um, which is at socialcapitalmarkets.net. Um, so you can get, we'll put some videos of Jed's talks at SOCAP before he decided he wasn't doing standalone talks, but they're more like 10 minute uh, sharp pokes to the industry. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely worth watching. Um, so, I thought, you know, how can I add something new here? And then had this moment where at the back of every Vanity Fair, there's the Proust questionnaire, which is Marcel Proust didn't come up with this questionnaire, but he sort of popularized it in parlor games. And he said that in answering these questions, an individual reveals his or her true nature. So since Jed spent so much time looking at the true nature of capital, we're going to see if he reveals a little bit of his true nature through some of these questions. Um, and we'll we'll digress here, Jed, a couple of times just to dig in, but hopefully we get some new info out of you in this format. <laughs> I'm sure everybody is uh, on the edge of their seat. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start with what is your idea of perfect happiness? Well, I mean, Obviously, I love to read a lot. So I think my idea of uh, perfect happiness is reading in the overstuffed red chair that we have uh, at our home in the Rockies and just having a glass of uh, lime sparkling water. But uh, there's also a big part of me that um, loves blasting on one of my uh, telecasters through a Fender Deluxe amp that I've got and uh, drinking a glass of whiskey. <laughs> so it's going to be somewhere in the combination of those the two The beverage matters. <laughs> the, yes, the beverage matters and an ability to re, to have time to reflect. I think that's one of the things that um, we really miss in our in our modern life is really taking setting aside time to just read and think and not not be putting out all the time, but rather to be absorbing and integrating. And then I think that for me, you know, music and playing guitar is a it's a way to get out of my left brain, if you will, of my head and and experience more of that, you know, creative uh, side that really is much more focused on understanding and feeling uh, as opposed to the intellectualizing around these issues of, of impact and life, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Music, I think, does that for a lot of people. It's something I've, I've always loved that you have this other, like you were in a band, you have this whole other side to you. But I think a lot of people in this industry, we've done some podcasts on the creative economy and a lot of folks in this field are artists and musicians. And so it seems to have a left brain, right brain balance. Well, or we bring both brains to our work. And I think that's the the opportunity that we have is, you know, that that is what's kind of different about this field is it's a community that is more whole or tries to be, I think, more whole and integrated and considerate of the total uh, experience that we're all having as a community. Yeah. So what is the trait you most deplore in yourself? 
I would, I really would have to say uh, impatience. I, uh, I, my brother one time said to me that he felt that I was, what was it? I didn't suffer fools gladly, and I felt that most people were fools. <laughs> and I think that, <laughs> that's kind of a problem. Um, and I, you're and a little I get, bit known as a curmudgeon, I'm but at the same time, you're so generous and like kind and thoughtful. So it's, it's. I think it's that impatience that gets you. No, I think it, it's nice of you to say and. When I, when I look back, it's just, I'm torn because on the one hand, I want to say, you know, like in my thirties and forties, I just created so much more friction for myself by the way I would engage with people and by getting angry with people who clearly didn't get (laughs) what this was about uh, and actually weren't working that hard to get it. I think a lot of people are pretty fat and happy with where we are with things. uh, And I just, uh, you know, I would just, it would just make me mad. And so I would get that way. And when I look back, I'm kind of like, oh, my God, like if I were and so I'm 60 now When I look back at my 30 year old self, I'm like, oh, what an idiot that guy must have looked I like. I think that's <laughs> what most 60 year olds think. Though. Is that the I thing? Mean, yeah, we <laughs> well, all should good. get wiser, right? Yeah, I well, that's hope. the hope. Yeah, that's <laughs> the hope. Um, but I just I, you know, in some ways, I feel like I just created more, you know, uh, barriers to advancing these ideas because of the way I, I had to advance them. And I say it that way because I, I've, over the years, I've had a lot of people said, boy, you know, like if you could just dial it back a little bit. And yet I also think, you know, Jesus, like we've needed to be angry and assertive and challenging in order to get heard. And now Absolutely. that everybody's trying to raise money from each other and be everybody's friend and it's all good, okay, maybe, but I still feel like we need to get angry. <laughs> and I guess the trick is, you have to, you have to, you know, lose the anger and keep the outrage, uh, or else you end up, you know, just destroying yourself ultimately and destroying your relationships. So I think it's an important distinction to make between those things. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And so, as an interesting counterpoint to that, the next question is: What is the trait you most deplore in others? I, I think it's got to be a, a lack of empathy, and I, I just feel that this is really central uh, and and it's empathy as connected with compassion and the the more we kind of uh, separate from each other the more we judge each other the more we kind of look at others and say geez you know that person how could they do this or that um, the, the the worse it gets in terms of an ability to kind of connect and ability to move all of us as a community to where we want to be and I think that um, you know we see this in politics, we see this in terms of the, a lack of caring about what our money does at night when we're, you know, safely in our beds and sleeping and it's out there kind of destroying the planet and destroying communities. I think we need to, to really just stop and empathize with who's on the other side of the deal, um, you know, who is having to respond to and, and deal with the effects of, of how we put money in motion around the world. So I think empathy is, is a really critical uh, factor that a lot of us lack. And I'm obviously not uh, without that issue myself sometimes. Yeah. I'm, as someone living in San Francisco, I often think of that. Um, there's some quote sort of, we belong to each other. And just with the disparities in this city right now, it's so hard to, when you want to turn that off a little bit, but recognizing that our futures are all intertwined. Yeah. Well, that's totally yeah. true. Which living person do you most admire? Well, I, I 
have total admiration for any folks doing direct service work with homeless or mentally ill people. Um, I think anybody who puts themselves on the line for our planet in order to block more development, whether it's the the pipeline development or uh, in uh, Brazil and in the Amazon uh, with the folks who are working against deforestation, uh, I think any public school teacher uh, is somebody that I admire Absolutely. greatly. Uh, doing doing work that, you know, I remember when I was doing street work with homeless kids and running that program, it is tough, tough stuff to do kind of day in and day out. And so to, to do this work, to be called to that work and to have opportunities really to engage in that, I, I admire those folks substantially. The front lines. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This is kind of a fun one. What's your greatest extravagance? Well, without doubt, <laughs> uh, would be uh, my guitar collection. And uh, I, I also love uh, rare books, uh, first edition books, and generally speaking, Western Americana, uh, you know, historical so, things from uh, the 1800s. What is West- oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, I was like, I'm like, flags? I don't know. So, no, no, no. Americana? <laughs> <laughs> no, I have, so I have a map on the wall, you know, a framed map on the wall in our home in Colorado that is taken from a set of reports that were published by the U.S. government in the mid-1800s. And at that time, the whole challenge of putting a, a railroad track across the country and uniting the East Coast with the West Coast was the equivalent of, you know, a moonshot, was the equivalent of, you know, uh, going into the stars. And uh, Jefferson Davis, actually, when he was uh, defense secretary before the Civil War, uh, ordered that all of the the expeditions that had been launched by the U.S. government from 18, I think it's 1805 to 1848, be brought together into a single uh, collection of reports. And then this map was part of that presentation, that collection that was published by the U.S. government. And to sit there and, you know, you can go from uh, Lewis and Clark uh, all the way up through Fremont and and other folks, uh, and track each of these expeditions and see them on the map is just incredibly powerful because it really reminds you of the journeys that that we're all engaged in. And it stops and makes you think about how the the different perspectives and understanding of reality shift in time. Uh, And we're in the middle of one of those times right now. And we are, I think, all in many ways trying to find our way and uh, are writing the new maps, if you will. So I, I love yeah. that kind of thing. It makes like me stop. Like a visual reminder of where thinking was, how far it progresses. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's very true. Which words or phrases do you most overuse? Well, I think clearly the, the one for me has got to be impact. <laughs> and so, and it's, but it's, it's funny because it's, it's totally true. And at the same time, it, the, the meaning of the word has become so corrupted, really, uh, by overuse. Uh, I know that at least some of the folks in the confluence philanthropy community are now saying that they just refuse to use the term at all. And I think that I'm increasingly kind of moving to other other ways to understand this as opposed to just impact. Um, I mean, right now, if you put, you know, impactinvesting.com into your search browser, you get taken to BlackRock's website. And, you know, that to me is a good sign that maybe I need to find another term. <laughs> well, so here's, what, here's my question there. When, you know, for the first decade between when you put out the blended value paper and when 
you literally wrote the book Impact Investing with Anthony Bug Levine. Before that shift in terminology happened, were you using the word impact all the time? Or is that really a product of sort of this relabeling? No, I think it's a product of the relabeling. I think that, again, it's part of what happened, you know, to, to your previous comment about the parade is you had these various different communities of practice. You had community development finance, you had the renewable people, you had the affordable housing people, you had the sustainable ag people, you had the social enterprise people. I mean, you had all these folks uh, who were all doing what to my mind was fundamentally the same thing, which is kind of bumping up against, you know, this notion of the bifurcated value proposition and rejecting the idea that you either, you had to choose between doing well or doing good. And instead we're really looking for what are the ways that you could, you could do something, you know, beyond the middle, if you will. Um, which is, you know, why I started talking in terms of value that it's, it's really our focus on the value that we want to create in our lives that we should be paying attention to. And I think what happened was when, you know, that group of investors and philanthropists and others went to Bellagio, sponsored by the Rockefeller Foundation, and had a conversation around, you know, how do we talk about this? Because it's not quite responsible investing, it's not quite sustainable finance, it's not quite community development finance. And, you know, the, the term impact and impact investing was proposed. I think part of why uh, it took off was that everybody could see themselves in it, and these, these block parties from uh, each of the silos of activity kind of flooded out into the avenues and you could connect yourself with each of these different kind of parts of practice, if you will, uh, under that broad banner of impact. And, and so now we've spent, you know, the last decade exploring kind of like, well, what do we really mean by that? And what does impact, how does impact look differently in these different contexts? And what are the issues and implications? And so, great. So we have all that work done. And now I think people are saying, you know, actually, you know, there's, there's something more even behind that that we have to go to. And so that's, that's part of what we're seeing as well as folks really, on the one hand, you know, celebrating and affirming the fact that uh, we have mainstreamed that concept and set of practices. And as a result, we have to continually go back to square one and reconnect with what does it really mean for us? Because if it's simply about creating more conforming product to be distributed through existing uh, capital platforms, and that's the answer to impact, I think we are grossly underselling ourselves. And more importantly, we're, we are going to be simply reinventing a new style of investing as opposed to reinventing capitalism itself. Well, it was, I did a, um, I was interviewed for a different podcast and they were sort of asking me about my, you know, how I came into the space. And I referenced sort of blended value to impact investing. And as outsiders to the whole conversation, they really latched on to, you know, those two terms feel very different to me. Blended mm. value feels much more, um, you know, value creation, understanding value, a much broader term of value. And impact investing has this much more sort of almost, they, I think they even said like male, investment finance sort of lens to it. And I just, I don't know if you've ever reflected on that sort of the personality differences or. Sure. Well, no, it's interesting. I think I remember the head of Calvert, Jen Price, giving a talk once and I, it must've been, I don't know what, 2012 or something like that before things had really taken off, but after the term had been introduced and she made exactly that point and said that they had thought about that phrase, impact investing, before it really had become popularized and have rejected it because it felt 
too aggressive, too male, uh, and, and at some level too destructive. And I think for Anthony and I, when we wrote the, the book on impact investing, which, as you said, was the first one to really use that term in the title and then to explore what those issues were, um, we, we said, you know, impact investing is what we do and blended value is what we create. And so I think that for me, I've always thought of it really as simply a set of tools in pursuit of optimizing total, holistic, integrated, blended value and that that's, that's what it is. I think that because of the dominance of kind of, you know, the male metaphor in, you know, finance and capitalism, it then can take on the same kind of personality type, if you will, that you just described. And that's part of why, you know, we need to, on the, I, I'm torn because on the one hand, yeah, you know, actually I want to smash fucking traditional financial capitalism. I have no problem with that being <laughs> an, an aggressive and call it male, call it whatever you like, but we got to destroy this system. But if and, anything, you like attracted that, you know, versus <laughs> like smashing it, they're like, oh, this, it says investing, like we're part of that. Right, right. Well, see, this is part of the challenge of words, right? I think <laughs> yeah, totally. It's, I think you are an excellent, you like, even your parsing of outrage and anger. Like I've always loved the way you pay so such close attention to words. No, thank you. Um, Don't think it was accidental that you started with blended value. <laughs> let's, no. let's leave it there. We'll there put a pin in it there. Yeah. Um, okay. So if you were to die and come back as a person or a thing, what would it be? Oh, I think I would, I would really want to be a sapling in a wilderness area. Because a, a sapling to me is at the start of its journey and process. Uh, and if you're in a wilderness area, the likelihood of your being cut down uh, by humanity is lessened. <laughs> I, would, I would say. <laughs> Maybe it's, forest fires, yeah, climate change. Things but, like that. Um, yeah. And so I think that uh, I think that is what I would really, I think that would like, I would like that the most. You have this deep connection to nature and to the planet. Um, you live in New York City now, but <laughs> don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like that that first question of true happiness, I feel like there's so many moments when I've just seen your joy come through the internet of like seeing a fox run by your window in Colorado. And how does that love and connection to nature come into this work on a regular basis? I, I think honestly, it's really central. Um, we we focus on humanity and we focus on social justice and we, we need to have that be you know a significant part of our work and i think we need to also recognize that that we are a part of nature uh part of what is wrong with our understanding of economics and finance is this idea that we are separated from nature and that we can you know just kind of do as we please without taking into account uh, the larger ecosystem that we really are a part of. And I think obviously, you know, the climate crisis that we're going through and um, everything is the end result of that kind of thinking. So um, we are uh, part and parcel with nature. We affect nature as nature affects us. And it's, it's part of our possibility for kind of transcending the human, the human experience and, and going to a much deeper place as opposed to thinking we are, you know, the be all and end all ourselves. When you open yourself up to transcending self and connecting with other and with the earth in particular as other, the, 
liberation that can be felt uh, in making that shift is just profound. And it's part of what keeps you alive and rejuvenating in terms of your own work and process and the, the journey that each of us are on. Yeah, I just read this book that I loved called The Overstory. Oh, yeah, that's a great book. Great book, right? It's like (laughs) the only book I've ever read where the main character is trees. And it just has this sense of sort of longevity and interconnectedness and the like a slower pace to time. Everything, you know, back to your impatience, like things can feel so urgent. Yeah. But that book just really slowed me down, but also gave me the outrage. I don't know. It was, it was a great read for me. Yeah. No, I love that book. And, and uh, there's a, almost a companion book, which is the hidden life of trees. I think that's the title. Um, oh, yeah. That, they reference it in there. Do they? Um, yeah. And, and I read, you know, again, both during the time when I was working on wrapping up the purpose of capital and, and, you know, the, the second book speaks to how trees communicate with each other uh, in different ways through chemical uh, releases and things like that. And it was just fascinating because it's, I think this is part of the thing is we think because other living and sentient beings speak a different language that somehow they're not speaking a language and um, that they're not feeling pain or uh, insight or have a, a level of awareness when in fact, I think they have a much greater level of awareness than we may actually understand uh, simply because of our own ignorance. And so I think this is part of the the liberation that comes with connecting with nature in a different way. Absolutely. As a lover of books, who are your favorite writers? You know, it's, it's a mix. I think um, Cormac McCarthy, Edward Abbey, uh, you know, were really folks that I love in terms of writers of the American West. And so, you know, they're high on my list but also people like Arne Ness and Baruch Spinoza, who were, you know, in the case of Arne Ness, he was a, the Norwegian philosopher who coined the, the term and then the concepts of deep ecology. And Baruch Spinoza, of course, was Baruch Spinoza, who's talked about uh, the nature of being relative to substance and, you know, really some phenomenal ideas in writing uh, very early on. And, of course, uh, people like Herman Hess, who... In some sense, um, it's. I think some people are embarrassed to say that they like his work, but I still love some of his novels. Absolutely. I think they're, I think they're really good, so I, I go for that. They transcend, I would say. They're, like, overly popular, and that's why people might embarrass, be embarrassed, but they just connect in such a broad way. That's right. All right, rapid-fire round here. Who's your hero of fiction? Atticus Finch. Which historical figure do you most identify with? Martin Luther King Jr., uh, more because of the effect that uh, he had. I was, I was, you know, coming up as a as a child and then as a teenager in the in that period of time, and so that really was was powerful to me uh, as a witness of a life and how we're called to be present in the world in the face of all that is the world. So I, I can't say I identify with what he went through, but I certainly admired and and sought you know, his writings and his, uh, you know, the role model as uh, something to be inspired by in my own life. You know what? And actually, I'm going to stop my own lightning round round there just because I want, that's like a great transition to, I I mentioned before you gave these two incredible talks at SOCAP 16 and SOCAP 17. 
And there's just this, like, this outrage in them. And we can joke about that. You know, you're wearing a resist shirt in one of them. And uh, you're clear, you're emotional in both of them. I mean, it feels like there, there was this shift happening for you in the world at that time. I mean, you think about Trump being elected, the Women's March, mass shooting, hurricanes, Me Too movement. I mean, it's all right there. But you give these really beautiful moments in those talks where um, in the SOCAP 16 talk, you talk about we shouldn't steer our vessels by the ships to our side, but by the stars above and then end your talk with ships in port are safe, but that's not what ships are built for. And you just use these beautiful analogies to say, like, break away. You know, this can't be all of us like comparing ourselves to our sides, which seems to tie for me to that. MLK. Like sometimes you just have to say, get out, like get out in front of it. No, I think that's, that's exactly right. And, and it is the, I mean, I, uh, gosh, one of my colleagues at Stanford business school, when I was there, he he told me the story of where he was, he was at some reception or something like that. And he, he was walking up to a group of people and for some reason, you know, my name had come up or something and they were all talking about what an asshole I was and uh, arrogance and all this stuff. And he said, he said, you know, yeah, Jed can, Jed can be a little much sometimes, but honestly, you can tell he's a pioneer because of all the arrows in his back. And I think there's, you know, setting aside the cultural inappropriateness of that, yeah. you know, that picture, I, you know, I think there is something about when you get out ahead, um, even though none of us are really ahead, that's the, the irony of all this, right? I mean, this, these are all ideas that have been explored by humanity for centuries, right? <laughs> and so it's really a question of that, that we're just trying to catch up with ourselves in a sense, right? But if yeah. you get too far ahead of the current mainstream conversation, you're viewed as, you know, as being difficult or you're viewed as not understanding the realities of the situation or you're viewed as uh, being disruptive or something. And at the end of the day, it's kind of like, you know, yeah, like if, if this is it, if this is all I've got, then I want to go down fighting. I don't want to just, you know, go on and get along. And, you know, I think as I've progressed in my own career and my work and things, my, you know, my biggest problem is the, the fear that I've simply becoming accommodating of the system and others and, you know, how we tend to think of things as opposed to myself personally, much less with those I care about or with our community, kind of pushing all of us to kind of go deeper and higher at the same time in order so that, again, we can move forward, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and I think in that 16, you're in this more reflective mode about, you know, what is our higher purpose? How do we get above the fray? And then in 2017, you're more like, we, we have to resist what we're seeing in the world. And place our bodies against the cogs of capitalism is an incredible line that capital is a fu- is fuel for freedom, that it's yeah. a tool for resistance, that our goal here isn't an absence of evil, but that we need to be in pursuit of healing, wholeness, and love. And that healing, wholeness, and love is revolutionary, is, is a form of resistance, was so powerful. No, thank you. And I think that's, that's it. And I, I think part of why I started going down that path was I just you know, I looked around where we were, whatever, four, four years ago now, I guess. And, you know, on the one hand, we should have been just totally celebrating because all this really has gone mainstream. I know there's some folks who still ask, kind of like, when is it going to go mainstream? But I'm like, look, we got like 30 to $40 trillion in global capital markets that are being managed on the basis of ESG integration, sustainable finance, and responsible investing. And then you have whatever it is, $500 billion 
on direct impact investing. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, we've won. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the fact that you have, you know, Larry Fink and, and, you know, the Goldman Sachs folks and all these others, you know, trying to have this conversation. I think, you know, we've definitely won. And yet, if winning means, you know, we're just bringing more product to market that doesn't actually change anything, then I think we've lost. And so I think it is important for us all to go much deeper in our reflections about what are we actually doing? Like, why are we called to be here now? And where then are we called to stand? And what should that look like? How, how do we be present in the face of, you know, Donald Trump and everything else that's happening around the world? And that's, that's a deep question to really have to struggle with, quite frankly, because, you know, the world is dying and we're killing it. And so, you know, what are we supposed to be doing? Um, so in any event, I, that's what I've tried to explore uh, in the purpose of capital and in those words that you quoted. And so I'm so grateful for the chance to ask you these, you know, slightly tangential questions. I think they all really inform, you know, who you are and why you're able to do the work that you do and the unique perspective that you have. And I, I think it'll be a treat for our listeners. Again, I'll remind everyone to go back and check out your more expansive writings on all of these topics. Um, but let's end with the last question in the Proust questionnaire. What is your motto? Well, I, I take my motto from uh, Albert Einstein, who is supposed to have said, uh, try not to become a man of success, but try to become a man of value. And I think that that's really quite, in all honesty, when I first read that a number of years back, I was totally floored because <laughs> I, had, I had just kind of, you know, viscerally gone into that kind of a frame and way of thinking. And so that's been something that I've uh, sought to really pursue for years and, and a long time. And let me also say, just as we end, you know, thank you so much for everything that you've done over these past years to create a, a supportive community through the SOCAP uh, convenings and a, and a place where a lot of us can come together and have these conversations and compare experiences and ideas and practices uh, in order to work better uh, collaboratively and apart. So, you know, just thank you so much, Lindsay, for the leadership that you've brought to our community. It's a joy for me. Thanks for everything, Jed. Take care. In the blog that accompanies this podcast, you can find links to some of Jed's main stage talks at SOCAP over the years and his thought leadership site, blendedvalue.org. Please recommend the Money and Meaning podcast to your friends and colleagues, rate us wherever you listen, and follow us at SOCAP Markets. All of our past podcasts and blogs are available at socialcapitalmarkets.net, and we look forward to hearing from you. How are you unlocking the potential of global markets to drive impact?